and welcome to Altamar. We are here to navigate the high seas of global politics. My name is Mooney Jensen and with me is my co-host Peter Schechter and together we're going to captain this boat for you for the next half hour or so. Join us and please go to iTunes, Stitcher or your podcast app of choice and leave us a rating and a review. We'd really love to hear your feedback and tell us if you like our navigation. Now last episode we discussed the monster election year that awaits us in Latin America. But across the Atlantic, Europe, Peter, is gearing up for no less of a turbulent 2018. And uh, today we're going to be looking at the erosion of Europe's political center, or not, why that is happening, and what it entails for both individual countries and, of course, and more importantly, for the European Union as a whole. We have a great guest with us today. Mark Leonard is a co-founder and director of the European Council on Foreign Relations, the first pan-European think tank. And he also writes a syndicated column on global affairs for Reuters and is the chairman of the World Economic Forum's Global Agenda Council on Geoeconomics. That's a mouthful. And like us, he has a great podcast called The World in 30 Minutes, and he will be with us in a few minutes. So, Mooney, this, I have to confess that this is a show that I've both wanted to do really badly and dreaded doing all at the same time. The subject about the future of Europe is something that both tugs at my head, but it also sort of really tugs at my heart because my parents were born in Europe. Uh, I was born in Europe. Europe is more than just a place for me or a foreign policy discussion for me. It's, you know, where I got my definition of education and family and culture, uh, where my notion of parenting came from. But you know, what I also find is the reason I, one of the reasons I dread it is because the subject is so vast and so complicated. There's so many nations, so many institutions, languages, nationalities, and interests lining up. And to do this justice in the short time that we have is hard. But today we're going to try to look at the European countries and politicians that make up the nations of Europe. But we're also going to try to look at the EU, which is, you know, this novel idea that isn't quite a state, though it has a flag and it has a capital. It's not quite an agency, though it sets rules on an incredible number of things. It's not quite a republic, though it has a president and a parliament. So we're going to look at the EU in the future, but the essential question that I think all of us, at a time in which the United States is retreating from the world, all of us are asking ourselves is, The West needs leadership, and if the United States is not there to give it, can Europe take over what the United States, at least for the moment, has left behind? So before we get into that discussion, Peter, why don't we take a look, and it's really hard to summarize Europe and and quite pretentious, but uh, let's take a look of what Europe was like and the the main themes that were covered in 2017. So I've summarized it and simplified it, and one was the refugee crisis, the other was the inevitable rise of populism, which is a worldwide trend, but it was very visible Europe. And the other is, of course, the issue of Brexit. So those were the the key trends where we ended last year. And now the key questions um, that some some we are going to address here, some are completely unanswerable. The first is how much power should the EU have? And there are many different versions across Europe of that question. The future of immigration, that seems to be really the breaking point for most of the leaders in the region. And, And what happens to the refugees next in the next years is going to certainly determine the political center or the political makeup of of the region. The third is the scope of frustration of the voters, of the citizens of the EU, and how big exactly is their Euro skepticism and what implications that has. And then, of course, you mentioned it, the new power structure vis-a-vis the U.S. with a Trump in power and a new shifting axis of uh, who's in charge in 
in the in, in the Western world. But let's also take a look at the economy because you did mention unemployment and a lot of the economic crises. But if you look at the numbers, the economy is strong. It's the first time in many years that Europe may grow more than the U.S., slightly more. But forecast is 2.4 growth for Europe and 2.3 for USA. So that is, you know, a significant number up from a very, very serious recession, including the numbers for unemployment, which is expected to be 8.7 for the Eurozone. Now we have countries with 3% unemployment and then countries like Spain that still struggle with over 15% unemployment. But it seems that now the story is more a story of political uncertainty than it is of economic crisis. It seems like economic confidence is higher than political confidence. I think that that you 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 did that really well the way you summarized. I think it the, the, you it it just feels like 2018 is the cusp of something. We've changed from a dramatic recession to a pretty dramatic sense of growth in Europe, and yet there seems to be a lack of trust and a lack of connection between voters and their institutions, which to a large extent has resulted in a real crumbling of what you call institutional parties but what I call the center and and if you just run through you know a lot of the countries in Netherlands the labor party's vote share went down by nearly 20% as a as a punishment for having back center right policies during a coalition government in Austria uh, the SPO didn't do so poorly, but the story there is really this rise of the far right uh, in ways that have now brought a young 31 or 32-year-old prime minister to office with the support of really um, a, a party that, that can be only called an extremist party. And, you know, it's, 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 it's not only there. More preoccupyingly, it is in France and in Germany. I mean, we had the excellent news today, at least excellent in my view, that um, Chancellor Angela Merkel seems to have managed an agreement to continue a grand coalition with the Social Democrats, um, which I think will at least steady up the most important uh, nation of Europe. But you know, even even there in 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 this country that is so important, just like in the Netherlands, the center left was pummeled for its support. Uh, of the right, and the ones that gained was this new party, this Alternative for Deutschland, which is uh, nothing but, you know, can be only called a very radical uh, solution. I mean, Franz Josef Strauss, the head of the Bavarian Christian Democrats, always said, the secret to our success is to never have somebody on our right. And mm -hmm. now the uh, Chancellor, Chancellor Merkel's party has somebody on their right. So, Muni, just to give everybody a sense and put us all on the same page. I mean, just to give a sense of where, where Germany is, Merkel's annual New Year's Eve address, which is usually a sort of rather jovial affair, or at least as jovial as Germans can get, you know, took a much more somber tone this year. She's, she's not blind to the uniquely unenviable position her government has been in. So take a listen to what Chancellor Merkel told the German people on New Year's Eve. I know from many conversations and meetings during the year that many of you are worried about social cohesion in Germany. We haven't seen such differences of opinion about this in a long time. 
Some even speak of a rift in our society. Germany's future is inextricably linked to Europe's future. 27 states in Europe must be urged more strongly than ever to stick together as one community. That will be the decisive question in the years ahead. The question will be whether we Europeans can stay true to our values in the global and digital world with solidarity and self-confidence, expressing them both internally and externally. Germany and France want to work together to make sure this happens, and in so doing contribute to making Europe fit for the future. You, fellow citizens, have given us politicians the mandate to deal with the challenges of our future while keeping an eye on the needs of all citizens. I feel obligated to fulfill this mandate, especially when it comes to working quickly to form a stable government for Germany in the new year, because the world will not wait for us. Well, that sounds pretty ominous, Peter, this the world will not wait for us. And I wonder if what the world is waiting for is uh, Mr. Macron, who seems to be in continued popularity and is turning into the president of Europe because he doesn't seem to think France is large enough for him. Um, but France is in a unique position where the hard centrist politics are performing relatively well, at least in his honeymoon period. But the demise of the Socialist Party and the Republican is no small story. These are parties that have historically dominated French politics and they're decimated and the PS is now forced to sell its headquarters that sounds like the Catholic Church just to raise funds and the, the really it, there has been a well-documented demise of the center left and the center right that has not just fueled the radical center but also the radical wings of the whole political spectrum in France so there is what is the scenario right now in France because we have a strong leader with a very very weak coalition right I mean I, and just to just just to just to strengthen your point, I mean, on the on the right, the the Republican chose a um, made a very interesting, and I say interesting in big quotations, choice for their new leader. Once François Fillon uh, was was retired after his loss, um, they chose a, a man called Laurent Vauquiez who you know is has said some very in a, in a very trumpian manner he said some very strange things about uh immigration and the theories of replacing the white race and things like that that i i, I just think are are proof that the center parties are now forced to have this radical appeal that the center parties now have to sound more extremist because they are uh, they they're now have these flanks that they have to cover that have been that have been increasingly exposed the fact that in most of Europe there is a parliamentary system rather than a presidential system makes it so that these the influence of these extremist group would be at the national front or the or the uh, AFD um, have a outsized influence because they drag the uh, the mainstream parties sort of well to the to the extremes in ways that just wouldn't happen in a more presidential system, be it here in the United States or in many countries in Latin America or even in some countries in Asia, where it's winner takes all and there is there is uh, there is no divisions of the spoils. So, to, so you were so to born in, in Rome. What is the story in Italy? Because that seems to be more of the same and a, a little bit more radical than the same. I mean, in, in Italy, Muni, we are all uh, cringing the upcoming election. Uh, 
it, it really now polling seems to be mixed between one of two winners. Uh, well, certainly there's one clear loser, which is the Partito Democratico, which has been in power since Matteo Renzi won the election uh, a number of years ago. Uh, and they're definitely third. Um, first is probably the uh, anti-establishment party called the Five Star Movement, Movimento Cinque Stelle, that was founded by a TV comedian named Pepe Grillo, who uh, is a very anti-European, very uh, anti-immigrant, very... Um, uh, based really on a throw-the-rascals-out type of, uh, of, um, of platform. They've won two major cities in the past, Rome and Turin, uh, where both now that we have five-star mayors, the five-star movement mayors. Neither of those mayors have done a particularly good job, and, and uh, chances are high that they would not be re-elected. Uh, and then second in the polls is the uh, party of the disgraced former Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi, who has been uh, uh, tried and sentenced on a number of corruption charges. Um, and yet, there he is again. He will not be Prime Minister. Uh, he can't be Prime Minister. But he is the kingmaker of, uh, um, because the coalition surrounding Mr. Berlusconi will probably make up the largest coalition, though Cinque Stelle, the five-star movement, are probably going to be the largest party. So we have this really weird situation in Italy in which a guy like Berlusconi, who's always been a massive Eurosceptic, is probably going to be seen as one of the 2018's great European men. He's uh, Europe's answer to Lula da Silva in Brazil, the just man that just won't go away. And, and uh, boy, it would be great if he would go away. But we need to, if any, any conversation about Europe needs to include a conversation about Great Britain, because uh, when you talk about popular discontent, boy, they really, um, they hit the, the top 10 of the charts when they voted for Brexit. I mean, I certainly think it is the one of the world's most significant acts of shooting yourself in the foot that I've, that either me or my children will see, but certainly many Brits don't think that. And, um, uh, you know, there is now, we are now faced with a situation in which popular discontent and an anti-institutional uh, revolt um, uh, brought Britain to the threshold of leaving Europe. And I think there is a, it's a pretty, there are very few people that can be found in Great Britain today who um, believe that this can be turned around. It's, it's really interesting how this has become passionate. I was recently at a, at a dinner here in Washington where a mother and daughter almost uh, quarreled very publicly about their own positions on Brexit. This was a Financial Times reporter and her mother, and they were very much at odds about what was happening. And that, that's kind of a little illustration of what's happening in there, um, even within families. Yeah, and 2018 is going to be a murder year for Brexit because, you know, though the 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 government of Prime Minister Theresa May who is this uh Shakespearean tragic figure because nothing seems to go right for her, um though she did come to an agreement of ha of the what are the issues that need to be discussed because there was a 
they had to be an agreement on the agenda of discussion before there could be a discussion of the real issues. But now the real issues are coming up. You know, how do you actually separate from the EU? How do you separate from all the laws and regulations and uh, air traffic control and sanitary regulations and immigration regulations and all these things which were jointly held and how do you separate from that is going to be a truly wrenching experience for Great Britain. So Peter, looking at this kind of very pessimistic view of Europe, um, and, and then here we have Macron, the shining light of anti-Euro skepticism. He's like a real believer in the union. I just wonder if if the EU is listening, because I don't think Euroscepticism comes just from radical politics and from extremist ideology. It comes from a true failure on the part of these institutions to represent the people or at least make enough people feel that they're represented. And I wonder how much of that um, is a cause of these new outbreaks of populism and extremism and of the, 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 you know, the, the weakening of the center. I don't think that the center is disappearing in Europe. I think anything that's traditional is disappearing in Europe and not just in Europe but all around the world we're seeing candidates from all walks of life from comedians to religious figures to everybody running for president all over the world so but is the EU listening and is it willing to look inside and make the necessary reforms that is why so much uh, relies on Macron as you said because he is the only politician who has been able to put into words what Europeans need and where Europe needs to go but not only that, he's been able to win on that on that platform. And so that is why so much is on his shoulders. On his very, very um humble Beautiful sh- humble shoulders. shoulders. I just I don't know. I have I have a skepticism about this need to find leaders. And so there's all this talk about oh, is Europe gonna survive without Angela Merkel? Yes, it is. And now who is going to be the new Angela Merkel in the you know at the helm of Europe? Is it gonna be Macron? I think that's more of a caricature, and I don't think that a lot of the voters in Europe are really worried about it. Well, I think it's a great moment to bring in the voice of Mark Leonard who really is somebody who lives and works and thinks about these issues every single day. Mark Leonard is the director of the European Council on Foreign Relations, the first pan-European think tank. He writes prolifically on the questions facing Europe and has been published in all major papers around the world. Mark is author of two best-selling books. His first book, Why Europe Will Run the 21st Century, was published in 2005 and translated into 19 languages. Mark's second book, What Does China Think?, was published in 2008 and translated into 15 languages. Honored as a young global leader of the World Economic Forum, he spends a lot of time helping governments, companies, and international organizations make sense of the big geopolitical trends of the 21st century. Welcome, Mark, to Altamar. Hi, it's great to join you. So, Mark, let me start with a question about the West rather than let me let me begin broad and and we'll get to Europe in a second. Since since World War II, Western nations led by Europe and the United States have been the world's rule setters. But not only it's not only about rules, it was a set of values that the West tried to promote. Is this epoch coming to an end as extremism besets Europe and the United States? I think there's a big challenge to it, which is coming from both outside and from inside. I mean, from the outside at a structural level, the West is shrinking in terms of its importance. After the Second World War, Western countries 
made up um, you know, uh, most of the, the global economy and quite a large chunk of the, the world's population. And now, with every year that passes, the relative share of global wealth and of uh, population, um, which the West makes up, uh, shrinks ever further. And that makes it much more difficult to be the people who decide what the the global conversation is about, what's right, what's wrong, what's important. And also, in many countries, there is a, a, a strong move towards wanting to, to be the subjects of their own story rather than the objects of other people's stories. So there is a, a, a conscious attempt to push back against the West. And then on the other hand, you have this counter-revolution within many Western societies where people think that the uh, moves of the last few decades to bring the world to, to, together to create a single global economy, to knock down borders, to build free trade um, between countries, has not necessarily served everybody's interests within the West. And there are more and more people who feel that they're being left behind that they are both stagnating economically, but also more uh, importantly for them, they're losing status and they're increasingly feeling like strangers in their own land. And this polarization has led to a pushing back against many of the norms that the West uh, had set after the end of the Second World War and after the Cold War and um, is uh, further undermining this uh, liberal international order which the West had created. So there's a sort of pincer movement from both the outside and the inside, which is uh, proving to be uh, quite a big existential challenge to the way that we thought that the world was, was running for the last few decades. Mark, you wrote recently that intrastate divides in Europe are a bigger threat to the EU than interstate divides. On the surface, it seems counterintuitive, but in practice, it's looking more and more like you're right. Help us understand why that is. Well, I think that, as you say, there, there are problems on two levels, because in a way, the European Union is a, is a sort of two-level game. One level is about how sovereign states work together, and there, there have been big differences to do with economics, history, and geography. Um, but what's interesting is, over time, we've seen those divisions between countries actually, in some ways, getting smaller. What's gone in the other direction are the divisions within countries. And that's not a pu purely uh, European phenomenon. I mean, in the US, there's obviously a massive difference between the way that people in the sort of coastal elites and people in the 1% uh, look at the world and many of the people who, who feel that they've been left behind who ended up voting for, for President Trump. Um, uh, and you see a similar dynamic in, in, in within European countries. So if you look at the work that political scientists have done and pollsters, you can see there's much greater affinity between people living in London, Paris, Berlin, Madrid, um, than, uh, you know, across those countries, but then there is between people living in London and, you know, Boston, Lincolnshire. And in, in many, many European societies, what you have is, is uh, uh, a deeply polarised political atmosphere where a lot of the mainstream parties are seen to be representatives of these sort of more cosmopolitan 
uh, political classes who benefited a lot from globalization and European integration for the last few years, whereas um, the insurgent parties that are emerging uh, tend to cater more for, for, for those who feel that they've been left behind, who are more focused on their national identity. Um, and, and that debate and dispute is increasingly becoming the, the sort of key dividing line in, in European politics, as it is in, in many other advanced uh, industrial countries. And um, the insurgent parties are trying to turn away from a debate which pitted left against right towards one which pits the, the people, the real people, against the uh, cosmopolitan elites. Right, 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 right. I mean, it's it's absolutely very... We The West suffers... The, many of the same ills, or, or certainly at least Europe and Europe and uh, and the United States suffer more of the same ills. Let, let me ask you the question that we ask ourselves here in in the United States all the time: H- How does the center in Europe regain its strength? How, how do, I mean, clearly, Mr. Macron now has been for the last uh, year or so since his election uh, an example of how centrist parties can come back. But is that an example that is able to be? Uh, repeated in other countries in Europe? Macron is an incredible uh, political phenomenon. I mean, he's obviously an extremely brilliant um, and uh, charismatic, articulate, and above all, bold uh, politician. Um, And uh, what he did was in a totally virtuosic way, took advantage of the the tiredness of the established parties within France and broke open the established political system and used a lot of the tools which insurgent politicians have been using for the extremes, um, but put them at the service of a much more centrist and mainstream agenda. Um, Some of what happened in France is pretty unique to, to, to France and the, also the, the structure of the French electoral system, which is very different from the electoral system in countries like the UK, where I'm, I'm talking to you from at the moment, or the US, um, and which makes it easier for, for, uh, for people to emerge. But I think there are some kind of important lessons as well in terms of how he's tried to frame the debates. And I think maybe the most important one is that rather than um, falling into the trap of seeing politics as a as a a battleground between elites and the real people or between an open world and a closed world what macron tried to do was to to reframe it so he was uh, as much an anti-establishment figure as the the populist parties and did not accept that uh the the being centrist meant that you had to defend the status quo including bits of the status quo that are not working secondly he didn't accept the idea that you either have to be in favor of a, of a, of a, of a sort of neoliberal pro-globalization open agenda, um, or you should be about building walls and, and closing yourself off to the world. Um, he tried to, to find a way of reframing the debate. And when he talks about Europe in particular, his big slogan is the idea of a Europe that protects, le hope qui protège. And the idea there is, is to sort of look at how we can rethink the European project so that we keep the elements which have been vital to peace and prosperity and the spread of democracy over the last few decades in Europe, 
but that we reassure the people who feel that they've been left behind and who are most vulnerable. And that does mean, um, you know, having a slightly different attitude towards trade, where it's not just about free trade and about ripping down barriers between countries, but about having fair trade and, and giving people a sense that their social uh, protection will be will be maintained, that um, uh, there will be an attempt to to use the size of the European market to create a more level playing field with China and with other countries that could be seeking to undercut um, Europeans. Um, he's also talked a lot about protection in the sense of, uh, you know, the fight against terrorism, about building up our defences against the rest of the world. Um, and uh, what he, I think he's, he's trying to do, which is interesting, is, is rather than uh, simply pushing forward frictionless um, uh, contact between different people ac across the world to try and make interdependence seem safe again. And that is, uh, is, is something which I think could help. Those two uh, core ideas, I think, could be very helpful to centrist politicians in other places and are not to do with the, the particularities of the, of the French political system. Right. Tell me, just Merkel has just eked out a, uh, a coalition agreement with the Social Democratic Party. So do you think her, uh, the, the, the warnings about her demise as the leader of Europe were premature? I think they were premature. I mean, she hasn't yet eked out a, a coalition agreement. What she's done is got an agreement to try and negotiate a coalition deal with the SPD, which will then eventually have to be put to a, a referendum of SPD party members. So it is possible that the grand coalition doesn't happen in Germany. But I, if I had to put money on it, I think that she will um, uh, have a, a coalition agreement and that she will carry on being chancellor of Germany. Um, because she's been there for a long time, because Germany is such an important part of the EU and um, is so powerfully full economically, I think she will continue to be a very, very significant figure on the European and international stage. She has lost quite a lot of authority within Germany and she is a lot weaker than she was before the refugee crisis in terms of her ability to, to shape her own country's uh, debate. But I, I suspect that once a government is in place, um, she can, she'll be able to stay for as long as she wants to and um, will be um, uh, you know, a pretty significant figure on the world stage. And particularly if she builds up a strong relationship with Emmanuel Macron, um, the two of them, uh, I think, will be pretty formidable. Mark Leonard, thank you for joining us on Altamar. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. So, Mooney, this fascinating interview with Mark and, you know, the need for all of us to take a step back and remind ourselves that the EU essentially was created as a, you know, common security area uh, to, to promote Western values and Western economics. And then as that progressed, it became a common trade area. And then as that progressed, it became a common financial currency area. And then as that progressed, it made huge strides in having a common political agenda. And I think what's really interesting about where we are is we're back now to the defense as President Macron is now arguing, given the fact that the United States is every day less of a player in the world, President Macron is arguing that the EU has to sort of, quote, woman up 
as mm-hmm. you taught me to say at the beginning, and be be much more of a strong player. And that means putting more money in defense, in a common defense, in a common European army that uh, will provide uh, a real uh, juxtaposition to what is undoubtedly an expanding Russian Russian influence in Europe. I wonder, though, if those grandiose security plans, uh, if, if Europe has the stomach for them right now. But even with Russia that we've not really discussed in this issue, in this episode, um, Russia is doing the little groundwork, the kind of, uh, yeah, the ground troops in, in supporting extremist parties and working with separatist movements. And I think that's a, definitely a threat that doesn't have any military connotations, but certainly has some political ones and is making important inroads in Europe. And, and you know, I, I, I just think that that argues so much more for the need for a Western voice that has not only a, um, a a political rhetoric behind it, but has strength and teeth in the defense of pro, the pro moral validity of profound Western arguments. And I think that this is this is to me, you know, I go back to how I began this this uh, podcast, which is to me the great question is: Is the West going to be able to? Um, to, to reach the other side here and to to come out of this tunnel of despair with a sense of direction and a sense of uh, of strength and you know I know that you're you're a big doubter of Macron but at least he's the one guy who's got some ideas who is and is promoting uh, a clear direction for that well he certainly looks good in comparative terms because I do think one of the main issues and and, and we have to kind of cut it short there is the enormous enormous moral political vacuum that the US is leaving with this current government and how that political space should probably be filled by a Macron rather than with somebody shadier or more dangerous no doubt about that. We'll leave it at that. Thank you for joining us on Altamar. Remember to go to your podcast platform and leave us a review and a comment. We'll see you next time.